Till I'm Tiptoed You Dot com The podcast about pop culture Black history and spirituality Yeah It's about to be a great vibe Dr. Tip Gonna take it away Till I'm Tiptoed You Hey y'all, hey, it's your girl Tip. Thank you for joining me for another edition of Tell Em Tip Tells You. I'm excited that you're here with me. I got some things I want to talk about today. Uh, I got an announcement and an apology to make first. And then I want to go over, you know, some news and reviews, some things that have been, you know, I think are important for us to start paying attention to. And then I want to jump into the conversation about black luxury that I witnessed um, snippets of on social media this weekend. So let's just jump right in. Okay, first, I owe you an apology. If you are on my email list, you probably witnessed some craziness going on. And if you were in the, uh, interested in the book club, you probably wondered where the login information was. Okay, let me tell you. So I went into my email marketing software and I drafted an email to my email list with the Zoom link for the first meeting of the book club. And I should have known something because it wasn't that many people at the book club meeting. In fact, they were only the people that I sent independent links to. And then I got some emails and some texts from some folk who I expected to be in the book club. And they were like, hey, you didn't get send us the login information. Well, sure enough, I looked in the email provider software and I didn't hit send. So then in my haste to make right I hit send on the wrong day so some of you got the book club information like almost a whole week after the book club met I'm so sorry for that and if you got the email and it caused you to be confused I apologize I will be sending out a revised email today um, today is Monday, February 8th. I'll be sending out a revised email explaining what happened and giving you the updates on the book club. Yes, we had our first meeting. We'll meet again on the 17th and I'll tell you what parts of the book we need to be read up to, so on and so forth. But I'll send that out today. So if you want to be included in the book club, make sure you're on my email list. Okay. I am really, really sorry about that. Charge it to my head, not my heart. All right. So let's get into some news and reviews. Super Bowl. I have nothing to share because I'm still yet boycotting. That's my only update on that. (laughs) All right. I want to talk about the nine-year-old girl who was pepper sprayed in Rochester, New York. Uh, Brandon and I have had some conversations about it. He'll be on the podcast again soon so we can talk about it. Rochester is his hometown. Listen, y'all. I'm tired. I don't know how else to say that. I'm tired. This young lady was having an episode. Her mother, from what I understand, is who called the police for assistance. And these grown folk couldn't handle a nine-year-old who was just upset. And while she was handcuffed in the back of a police car, because she wouldn't listen to them about putting the rest of her body into the car, they, they pepper sprayed her. Like that was their only... Um, strategy for dealing with an unruly. I don't understand. I, I, well, yes, I do understand. I understand that they still don't see us as human. 
I still, I understand that some white folks still don't see black people as human and therefore they treat black children like they treat black adults, which is not like humans. You understand what I'm saying? I, I understand um, because I'm in education and I understand some of the research around girlhood and boyhood. I understand that we do have a problem with the adultification of black children, that they're usually seen as older and therefore more responsible than their white peers and counterparts. I Yeah, that that's some of what's happening. But I think what's really happening at the core of that even is that black people still are seen as property, that we're still seen as um, uncontrollable, quote unquote, savages, right? And that they still don't know how to deal with us, even our children. And we're going to have to, you know, the layperson's definition of insanity supposedly is um, to do the same things all the time and expect different results. At some point, we're just going to have to deal with this is the reality and come up with some fixes that don't deal with the same strategies we've tried to use for fixing this stuff. I think defunding the police is an important place to start. I also think that there, what, what some cities have done, which is to put the money then in a nonviolent organization where if a mother uh, or some type of caretaker is having problems, a mental health breakdown of a loved one, then you're not forced to call 911, but there is another number that they can call and social workers and licensed clinical therapists and people like that can come out. Crisis negotiators, you know, they can come out and help de-escalate the situation and not escalate a situation into violence. You know, I I just, we really have to create some community I don't even want to use the word policing, but some community caretaking models. Um, And we don't have to wait on outsiders to do that. If we live in a connected community, which is what we should all be seeking to create, then we should be having meetings with, uh, with and among ourselves to create some strategies for dealing with this. Let me also say that's why professionals need to be living in, in black communities. Because you need to be sharing some of your skills in that community to help de-escalate, right? I'm not, I, yeah, I said what I got to say about that. I also want to talk about this school because all of this is linked to me. I also want to talk about this school in Utah that is a Montessori school. Now, let me say this. If you don't know what a Montessori school is, it's a strategy for education, but it's it's really human-centered, right? It's really about allowing the student to explore, make connections with other people and with the natural world. It's a very holistic, I agree with a lot of the principles of Montessori education. Now, there's a school in Utah, right? So it's Black History Month. And some of the, according to the director, some of the parents were um, upset that their students had to be exposed to Black History Month activities. And so although he didn't want to, so he says, he sent out a letter to parents that they could opt out of Black History Month observations. Now, since then, he's caught a lot of heat, and rightfully so. The school has caught a lot of heat, and he's reversed his decision. But let me say this. Black history is not optional. It should never be treated as optional. 
because black history is the quintessential part of American history. You would not have U.S. history if not for the contributions of people of color. And I'm purposely using people of color there because I mean First Nations people. I mean black people. I mean Asian people. All right. So you would not have had the United States as it's come to be without the contributions of these various groups. And black history is part of that. It is not an option. Now, let me say this because I was listening to an interview with LeBron and I was slightly irritated, but I had to give him some room because he may not have. I, I have privilege. Let me go in and, and, and put that out there. I have the privilege of being educated by Pan-Africanist teachers. I have the privilege of being rooted in Black studies, okay? And so I have found in the last few years that things that I thought all of us knew, I'm, I don't think we all knew, <laughs> right? So let me, let me try to give Brother LeBron, some James, LeBron James some room here. But in the interview, he was saying that, you know, for him, black history was 12 months of a year. They gave us the shortest month of the year and blah, blah, blah. Okay, listen, I thought we knew better by now. We chose February. Okay, Carter G. Woodson, a black man, chose February. Now, I do think why he chose February was a little off. Okay, he chose it because of Lincoln's birthday and because of Frederick Douglass's birthday. They are in February. So Negro History Week, when it started in 1926, began in February. Now that it has extended into an entire year, I'm sorry, into an entire month. Yes, it's during February. That so happens to be the shortest month of the year. Now, let me say this. Woodson never articulated anywhere that I have seen or heard of that you should only be learning black history during black history month. The black history month, Negro history week is a period of celebration. It's when you celebrate. It is not when you learn. Yes, you should be learning black history 365 days a year. Yes, we can celebrate. There are some of us who celebrate blackness 365 days a year, but the period of recognition of collective celebration is February. There's not a problem with that, y'all. If you think it's the shortest month of the year and you have a problem with that, celebrate 365. But some of y'all saying you want to celebrate 365, we can't hardly get you to do nothing for black people in March, June, October. Okay? That, uh, you know, let's let's get that together so we can be on on, on the same accord with that. It is a period of celebration. We don't, it's not about the first black so-and-so, the first black so-and-so. That's not enough. And let me say this, when when we say, because this is my pet peeve, and then I'm getting back on track because I'm off track right now. One of my biggest pet peeves is when we say, this is the first black so-and-so. And we, you know, I'm human. And so when, when Kamala was sworn in as vice, I was excited too. First black, you know, woman to, yeah, I was excited too. But the reality is when we celebrate people for doing what they could have already done in a just society, what we're doing is centering the pathology of white supremacy. 
Do I think that Kamala is the first black woman who was qualified, who should have held that office? Hell no. Do I think Barack was the first black man that was qualified, should have held that office? Hell no. So when we celebrate them as the quote unquote first, what we're really doing is acknowledging that finally there seems to be some fairness where there has not been. So we have to be really careful of why we celebrate what we celebrate. And remember that, and Kamala does a pretty good job talking about this. She couldn't have existed without the women before her. She couldn't have existed without a Fannie Lou Hamer, Shirley Chisholm. She couldn't. She understands that it's important for us to understand that. All right. Now, I want to get to, so let's go back to the school thing, right? So the, making a Black history optional, parents can opt out. We really are seeing a problem with U.S. public schooling. And my students, if you, if you talk to any of my students, um, they will tell you that I have been saying since 2014 that we will probably see the death of public education in our lifetimes. Um, I'll talk more about that in another time. I'm not going to get on that right now. But I think we're starting to see the crisis come to a head. The crisis being that the U.S. has never intended to offer quality education to all of its citizens. Now, you can fight me if you disagree, but, you know, you're wrong. <laughs> I do not believe this country ever intended to provide equitable educational access to all of its citizens. Now, I do think black people who are most responsible for the birth of public school did, but I don't think they really had the full support. And the history in Georgia in particular shows that they never had the full support of the state governments. All right. When we look Right now, in higher education, there is something happening that I want to alert you to. And if somebody asks you, you tell them Tip told you, and you could tell them I told you early. There is something I want you to Google. I want you to learn more about the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC. The American Legislative Exchange Council. I'll put a link in the show notes. I want you to just Google that and explore it. Now, what ALEC is, is a group of corporations, rich donors, so on and so forth, who secret themselves behind closed doors and draft policy. Now, it's usually very secret, the policies that they draft, but here's how you can recognize it. Once it's been drafted, they send it to their, I don't want to say paid for, but their representatives in state legislatures. And you'll see the same drafts of bills come out of different states' legislative offices, right? So somebody, a representative in Georgia might release it, then a representative in California might release it, then a representative in Montana might release it. And when you put the bills next to each other, they all say the same thing. And because Alec can send these bills out. They're like a legislative mill. They send these bills out. It's more likely to get passed because you have different Congress people submitting them anyway in different states. And what you begin to have is through the states, a federal policy that's not really federal. Okay. I want us to pay attention to what Trump was trying to do this past year the 1776 Commission, which was going to revise American history even more 
even more. And some of the language in the 1776 that the 1776 committee put out was talking about critical race theory. Remember, Trump tried to cut off all federal funding to support critical race, anything that dealt with critical race theory. And the legis- the wording of 1776 committee said things like anything who would make a white male Christian feel that he is inherently bad because of his identity, so on and so forth, right? When you look at, let me, let me just go on and be completely transparent. In the state of Georgia, Representative Donahue sent out a um, email to some educators in Georgia, and it filtered down to the, just a regular classroom teacher like myself. And the email asked, were there any classes in the University System of Georgia or Georgia public schools that taught critical race theory or taught content that could make a white male Christian feel attacked, threatened, so on. I'm paraphrasing, so on and so forth. But the phraseology comes almost directly from the 1776 commission. Now, here's what's what's. Um, What's making me worried about that? I have some colleagues in some different states and they've gotten similar questions from their state legislature. And I am thinking what's happening is Alec is about to start to push some of these bills because thankfully, one of the first things Joe Biden did on the day he was inaugurated was to reverse the 1776 commission and to reinstate um, federal dollars for the study of race and so on and so forth. But that does not mean just because Trump is no longer in office. He, see, Trump's presidency was dangerous for a number of reasons. But one of them is because um, people saw him as the villain and didn't necessarily look at the system that supported him. Now, although he is gone as the figurehead of the system, the system is still there. And so we have to be very careful about legislation like this, particularly those of us who belong to marginalized populations and those of us who are educators need to be paying very close attention to Alex's um, shaping of educational policy at the state level. Okay, I just want us to be aware of that. I want us to be, I, I want us to understand what happens. So again, Alec is the centralized body. It's a very secretive organization. You're not going to find much on their website, right? It's going to be written in a very neutral political jargon, right? But if you Google it, you'll find some other uh, investigative reporters and things like that who are starting to to try to unravel what's happening and you'll be see you'll they'll show you evidence of how the bills are the same in different places and that Alec is the root of all of that. I think we have to be very careful, but I also think there is a model in there for us of what we probably could be doing and there is we have a historical model. The historical African American pedagogical model that Vanessa Siddle Walker writes about was a similar historical model that black educators had prior to Brown to help achieve Brown, the Brown versus Board of Education. So we had where there were conferences that filtered down to the states and then the states filtered down to their regions so that similar curricula could be introduced in the schools that that supported racial uplift, that supported black political engagement, 
that supported to black supported black citizenship, so on and so forth. So we have roots of a similar kind of organization in our history. I think now in February is the perfect time to learn more about that. I'll be talking about it a little bit more on the blog and on um, the podcast. So pay attention this month. I'm going to do some more with that. But I do want you to go ahead and Google the American Legislative Exchange Council so you can become familiar with that. Now, let me get into um, another piece that I also think is linked to white supremacy. I wanted to get in on this conversation about black luxury. Let me tell you something. Abundance is your birthright. You are entitled to the best of all things. You know, Westerners have a scarcity mindset. Let me tell you how you can tell. Because billionaires hoard. You don't have to hoard. You don't have to hold that much capital unless you think there's a finite number. A finite degree of capital that you can obtain. Otherwise, you don't hoard. You just give. I've said before, I don't understand how Bezos is about to be a trillionaire and has not yet ended. And let's say he don't even have a global mentality. It has not yet ended U.S. homelessness, U.S. housing insecurity, U.S. food. How haven't you ended those things? You have the money to do it. It has to come from a scarcity mindset that says, I have to hold this because if I don't hold this, I won't have enough. All right. That is very anti-African. Africans don't have that kind of scarcity model. In fact, um, I'm trying to think what book that was I was reading. I think it was in Signifying. I'll put in a link in the show notes to the book. Um, but they were talking about Toni Morrison's writing and how black women writers like Morrison did something to record history without really recording history. And that was the black South uh, reconstruction, post-reconstruction. There wasn't a mainstream move towards amassing quote unquote wealth. What there was, was a mainstream move towards economic autonomy economic agency, and comfort and joy, right? Now, that doesn't mean that you're not trying to make money. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I think that's different from the current generation's drive to amass large large amounts of wealth. Now, I appreciate those who are trying to obtain legacy wealth so that generationally your children are taken care of. But people who are hoarding just to hoard, again, to me, that comes from the scarcity mindset. All right. So I wanted to have that conversation first. But I also want us to move towards critically analyzing why some of us feel uncomfortable with images of black excess. It can look, it's a complicated idea, right? In traditional African culture, and I'm a Pan-Africanist, so don't y'all go, it's many different African cultures. What's the one you're talking about? All the ones I've studied, boo-boo, 
all of the ones I study, whenever there is a person in the society who has amassed large amounts of wealth when there are hungry people present, tend to be viewed as practicing some sort of sorcery or witchcraft because they don't believe that is normal. All right. At the same time, though, historically and traditionally, Africans like to flash. (laughs) We like the bling. We like to live well. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There was a period in U.S. history, as evidenced by the 1921 Tulsa massacre, that it could have, it is, it is sometimes dangerous for black people to flash, to have economic security, to be building generational wealth, legacy wealth. It can be dangerous. And so I think there are all kinds of reasons why some of us are uncomfortable with flashes of black wealth. All right. I think that's going on. But I also think there is a part of it where black people have been socialized, particularly in the United States, not to see their own worth and not to see their own value. And because of that, we, some of us, sometimes find it difficult to be fairly compensated because we won't ask to be, because we won't demand to be. I'll I'll speak for myself now. With the level of education I have, with a particular kind of training I have, with the particular talents and skills I have, my nine to five should pay me more than I make. Tiffany has to do some self-work to figure out why I am uncomfortable demanding more. Now, I'm just going to put that on the table, let you see all my ugly, right? When I negotiate, my speaking fees different places. Tiffany has to interrogate why she does not charge what I know other people are getting. That have lesser of my experiences. That aren't as prepared as I am. Why does Tiffany feel uncomfortable leveraging her gifts and talents? Even in my own business, why are my things priced the way they are, except that there is a minute part of me that's like, am I really worth X amount of dollars? Now, I'm telling you my ugly because some of you may see yourself there. I don't think I'm alone in that. And just what I said, it takes work for us to unpack that. We have to understand that those feelings That imposter syndrome, feelings of a lack of worth and importance are deeply rooted in living in the kind of society we live in. And we have to figure out what the sources are so we can begin to mitigate them so that we can see our worth and our value. I also think black people got to start talking to each other about how much we make. I used to think the little money I was getting to do uh, speaking stuff was a lot of money until I realized how much some other people were making because they were transparent and honest with me. And they were like, oh, I don't leave the house for less than $5,000. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? What? I, I don't, what? Right, it was completely foreign to me. Now, let me say this. So take someone who's feeling like I'm feeling. 
If you are not critically reflective, if you don't take time to really do the work to unpack and recognize where that's coming from, when you see a sister or brother who seems to be able to do what you cannot do in terms of demanding their wealth, I mean their worth, and then you see them enjoy some of the things you would want to enjoy, give birth to a little hater inside. And that hater may start to talk negatively about black luxury. Not because they really inherently see something wrong with living well, but because there's a part of them that says, that convicts them. Let me say it like that. There's a part of them that is convicted every time they look at it. Again, let me put my ugly on the table. There are some social media accounts that I occasionally follow and unfollow because I realize it may give birth to a little hater inside. (laughs) I have to be careful. I'm doing the work, though. And most of the time, ain't nobody perfect. If anybody tells you they don't struggle with this, they a lie. Okay, I'm just saying. There are sometimes I look at these young women who have who who are really living the entrepreneurial life and they have the markers of success. And I'm not talking about manufactured Instagram wealth, you know, where you you renting stuff, you taking pictures with stuff you rented and you borrowed this purse to take a picture. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about I, I, I've watched you make moves and I've watched you grow and I've watched you buy the coach and then I watched you buy a Brahmin and now you've got a Louie and so on and so forth, right? So I've seen you do these things. On one hand, on a good day, I look at that and I say, if she is doing this, certainly me, I can do it too. Let me use this as motivation. And that's the Instagram account I keep following. On the other hand, if I'm looking at it and I start to feel like, why she always taking pictures with her range? Why she always got to show us the new warehouse? Why she got to be with her boo? Then I need to unfollow. And do the work that comes with the unfollow. I got to figure out what is. okay. so there's obviously something in that. That is bothering me. Why is it bothering me to watch another person enjoy the fruits of their labor? The other person is not wrong for enjoying what they enjoy. Now, I do think some of these people could do a better job with balancing what we see. Right. Don't nobody wake up perfect. You know, they, they're coming on live on Instagram and they roll over. And, and those of us who wear makeup can tell they got on some BB cream and they've, eyeliner, you know, They got some eyeliner on and some mascara and they pretending they just woke up. No, ma'am. You know, there are people who are manufacturing lies for us to see. I just think we should do a better job balancing it out so you see all the ugly. Your room ain't always clean, boo-boo. That kitchen table ain't always spotless. You came home and put the folder from your job on the table just like I do when I get home. You know, I do think we got to do a better job of balancing it out. But when we see these images of black wealth, of black luxury, and we feel uncomfortable, that means we have self-work to do. You aren't stuck. You too can amass wealth. 
Your worth is abundant. And abundance is your birthright. And understand this. And I want to end on this note. Black luxury doesn't look the same way to all of us. My father, black luxury for him would be able to buy a house in some, on some secluded lot with a fish pond and be able to get out there every day and throw a line in the water. Black luxury to my mother would look like a beach house. Black luxury to me would be in an urban center. Right. So I think there we, we don't give room for the different ways that wealth can manifest. For me, black luxury is spending time with my family and my friends. It's being able to sit on the beach and read a book and not be bothered. That's black luxury. I think we have to challenge the, the definition, right, to open it up to other ways that some of us see the world. I think we have to challenge why some of us don't feel comfortable demanding our worth and our value. I think we have to interrogate the social messages that tell us whether or not we're entitled to scarcity or wealth, so on and so forth. I just think there's a lot of work to do. And I'm glad that the conversation has started. I really want us to have an informed conversation and an honest conversation. And I don't know. I'm glad that it started on social media because it has a broader broader reach. But I think these are conversations that we need to start having in our own social groups. And let it expand from there. So, um, yeah, that's what I wanted to cover today. (laughs) I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Tell Them Told You. Y'all have a good one. Bye.